0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to lead first team sports scientist at Hull City Football Club, Steve Barrett. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode is the first live episode I've ever done, so made a big investment in a, in a second mic and took it down to Hull City Football Club's training ground and had a chat with Dr. Steve Barrett. So me and Steve are good friends, so it made sense to, uh, to do the, the first live one in a, in a friendly environment that I've been quite a few times already. So it was a day off for Steve, but he kindly came in to the training ground to, uh, to have a chat. So hopefully I've got the audio half decent, so it's, uh, it's listenable, uh, but I think I have. So um, Steve goes into some lots of detail uh, in terms of uh, training load. Obviously he's well known for his, his PhD in player load, um, which we also touch on. And one unique thing about Hull over the last couple of seasons is the amount of managers they've had. I suppose I say unique, it's, uh, it's gone everywhere in English football, but especially at Hull. Had lots of different managers from uh, a number of different countries uh, and have now come back to... Um, an English manager, which is, he was in, not the same guy, but an English manager that was in place uh, when Steve first joined the club. So really interesting chat around how his influence has changed and how his delivery has changed um, as managers have come and gone at Hull City. So really interesting chat, uh, which I'm sure you will um, I'm sure, you'll get
1: loads out of. Um, working with kids actually really helped me just to work with the foreign players because you have to be so descriptive of what you're doing like right okay go back to the, the article right you talk them through it you demonstrate it and then you action it kind of thing and that's worked really well for me so ultimately they all know what the processes are but just before
0: we do get into this episode i want to say a big thanks to vald performance for sponsoring this episode today so if you haven't heard of vald performance they are the guys behind the Nordboard. board the groin bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at valdperformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Val Performance website when they do become available. So if you like I said if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products visit valperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forcedex. So big thanks to Forcedex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forcedex.com, but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139. We're co-owner of Forcedex, Dr. Daniel Cohen. Goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for ForceX, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of ForceX uh, as re- with regards to the the software. So, if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website, and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. Bit of a test for me today in. Uh, like the first live podcast, how does it feel to be the guinea pig, Doctor Steve? I've got to say, Doctor,
1: Doctor <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. That's the first take. So at least you did the first take rather than me. <laughs> <laughs> nice, no, good, and looking forward to it. Like the podcast has been brilliant, for, especially in our discipline. It's helped really educate everyone, so it's great to actually be a part of it. So thank you for oh, inviting me. Stop it.
0: <laughs> so we sat in th-
1: Thursday morning.
0: It's a lovely day in Hull. Obviously, at the back of you got the nice, uh, lovely pictures with the uh, groundsman working very hard. But first time what's for your, everything. It's what
1: first time for everything. First yeah. time for
0: everything. But yeah, what's your, what's your role here? What's your yeah? When did you come? What did you do before this? What's your current role, um, job title, etc.?
1: Uh, so I suppose a little bit about me, I actually started off as a football coach first before I was a sports scientist. So I was um, working within the Gunfolk United uh, Football Academy, uh, working um, first of all in the foundation phase. Um, and while I was working, so I got my UEFA B coaching badge. And then as I was doing that, I was also doing my undergraduate in sport coaching performance So at the University of Hull. Which is ironic, really, because now we're sat at the University of Hull training ground. It's uh, come around full circle as well. Um, so when I was at Scunthorpe, got to learn a lot about like the the not just a coach athlete relationship, but working with other coaches, like managers, head of academies, and stuff like that. And because we were such a small club, you got really well integrated with even the first team stuff. So I was doing a lot of work with the then manager at the time, Nigel Atkins, and. Uh, his assistant manager, which was the captain Andy Crosby who ironically now uh, mm-hmm. our first team my head coach and assistant head coach so um, yeah at the end f- come around full circle but I was working at Scumfort while I was doing my undergrad I then carried on working at Scumfort United got the full time job when I was in my third year of uni full time first team? full time with the academy so academy sorry I, yeah. yeah so my my account. My official job title was Technical Development Coach. Right. Yeah. So, which, if you've seen my football ability, Rob, after <laughs> against each other back in the day, yeah. it, technical is not what yeah. I'm about. But, um, the, it basically encompassed like coaching, sports, science, sport. I was doing the performance analysis as well because it was a small club we wanted to really push on. And a lot of thanks go out to, likes of Guy Park and Tony Dawes who were great inspirations there, and I choose now back here as well and so that was a really great experience and I carried on doing my masters part time there as well um, and then from there I got the opportunity to go do a PhD while working for a company called Perform Better uh, which again got in common with yourself mm-hmm. Rob through working there and I was a, like head of sports science throughout sports science uh, support there and that was a really great opportunity to work within not just football but different sports as well and I think that's probably one of the best um bits of advice I can give people is go work in different sports and learn from different sports well that's really stood me in good point to where I am today and a lot of the work that I do now at the whole city football club is thanks to that experience through doing a lot of different um Work in sports such as rugby, gymnastics, tennis. It was really exciting opportunity.
0: Was was it was it a quite daunting leaving professional football club to go work on the commercial? I know you weren't involved in the commercial side, but yeah, you're working for a private company.
1: Yeah, I think that's always the worry that you go from the like professional sport, and you go, oh, I don't want to leave the environment. Like, I might not be able to get back in. But ultimately, you work hard to get the experiences I'm a big believer in that will pay dividends in the long run and that and that's obviously what worked for me I, like, I had to stress when I went into the private sector for a bit that actually like, I didn't want anything to do with sales like the guys would sell and I'd be going in a sports science consultant sports science support which that job actually led to me being a appointed as physical performance coach through exercise scientist at the FA for five years within the women's um, section, which again, I really enjoyed that, but that wasn't because of the sales side of it. That was because of knowledge and experience both coaching and the applied environment as well. So while it is daunting, I know there's a lot more companies coming out in the private sector that are related to sport. I think it's actually a great experience and great exposure for people to go work in that sector and also it gives you a different life experience as well. Like we get engrossed in football and my missus always reminds me of this, is that like, I tend to live my job rather than live my life. And sometimes you don't get the opportunity to do that. But the private sector actually allowed me to just experience it. Although saying that, <laughs> in the private sector, because I was doing my PhD, I actually ended up working four days a week for the company and then three Three days so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, doing my PhD and uh, testing and the, the FA stuff. stuff, yeah. So, like, the FA stuff was uh, on top of that. So, I didn't, to be honest with you, I threw myself in my job like I was single at the time, so I could get away with it a bit more. Then, whereas now I'm married and everyone, and you're getting married soon, Rob. Yeah. So, I'll be prepared for this. <laughs> but you, you always you have to get the family balance right with your work output. And while I was single, I really tried to make the most of it. I still try and make the most of it now, just hide it a bit better from the wife. So, um, but yeah, some of the experiences I've had have really stood me in good stead and I feel it made me a better practitioner as well. So what was the
0: transition like from back from the commercial side, again, there you're on the commercial side, but back to the football club? Hey,
1: It was interesting really because I'd been working in football clubs so as part of my job in the private sector I was doing consultancy bits so one with FA, like I did a bit with Aston Villa Football Club for a while um, and a lot like Leinster Rugby as well and while I was doing those kind of like things it kept me in touch with the actual club environment and I got a few offers there but ultimately like when an offer comes to go back to your hometown club for a position that you'd kind of been working for, it was hard to turn down really, because the last job, like I've said before, great experiences, great job, um, but it was a hard offer to, to turn down to come back into the environment. And also it was, the the club had been going through a transition phase where I, a lot of managers had been, been gone so, like Nigel Pearson. So like Nigel Pearson with Paul Balsam and Matt Reeves were like the first guys to really introduce that sports science concept here oh, alongside yeah. 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 So so Matt and paul that's where I first met Matt and Paul within the private sector actually like coming into Hull City Football Club and getting them up and running alongside Sean Rush as well. Um and it makes makes me laugh because we sit in this nice office now Their their office was actually our nutrition store cupboard now where (laughs) there's no windows no natural light
0: yeah
1: so it shows transition at the club where now we've actually got like a club philosophy for sports science and medicine so that was one of the attractions as well that it was to integrate a club-wide um kind of philosophy for what we're doing and we're into so this is the fourth season of that um We've had a couple of people been and gone, but the philosophy still stands strong and we've progressed each and every year as well. And I think that's important that while we're, we're currently in a fashion trend with sports science, at some points whereby the latest gadget comes out and go, everyone goes, we must get that. It's the best best thing in the world. We're, all, we're always a bit cautious here to test the validity, reliability and ensure that actually where does it fit within the processes? Where are we going to integrate it within to our protocols? And we made some mistakes along the way. I'm not saying it's perfect, but now we're getting to a point where everything we purchase is integrated within to our program becomes a strong part of our program to improve ultimately the, the performance of the players, support the coaches staff better, because our our job is to help the team get three points on the weekend. That's what we're here for. And I think we always have to keep that in mind. Like ultimately does... Does our job help influence performance? If it doesn't, why not? So even little things like players speak to me every day, like when we use the differential RPE here, it's like, why do I have to fill this out every day? And it's just reminders. Ultimately, it helps us manage you, helps us be smarter about your loads, and that way we can help make sure that you arrive game day fit and fresh.
0: Is there anything that you've tried to implement that hasn't worked?
1: Yeah, I think, to be honest with you, we've had a few... Because of the interest of some, pe- some people in the department, you try and challenge yourself and you go, I'm a big believer in getting, the- I know there's the old cliches and apologies about this to the listeners, but it's about getting the 95% right before you go to the 1%. I know there's a few people that use that term, so I won't quote everyone that's used it. Um, but ultimately, we have to get that right. And I think sometimes people get excited about jumping to those 1% before we get everything basic right and stuff like so the cognitive learning so something like the neurotracker while it's a great tool our program wasn't ready for something like that at the time when we bought it and that's where sometimes we make mistakes like you use it with some of the injured players and the protocols can be up to half an hour or so and it's a great tool however it just didn't fit right within our program at the time so ultimately that fell by the wayside so right there's a whole thing of virtual reality coming in now and everything else and while it's exciting it's like right if we're going to really push on with that and invest in it then how are we going to use it within the protocol within our program how are we going to use it with fit and injured players hopefully we don't have many injured players um and it depends on what the philosophy of the club is as well are we going to have the availability to do that and other specific players who we can work with on that so we've already targeted like three four players who could really benefit from doing that kind of work so ultimately that will fit into their individual programs and that's what really was an attractive thing about this role is that the the head of department rob price was really keen on trying to make everything individualized within that team environment it's ultimately, while we're in that team environment there should be a team philosophy in that you have to make sure the individual is fit healthy and prepared the best that they can be in order to improve that team. I really think that's where we're trying to be smarter with how we're not just programming for the players, but monitoring the players and educating the players as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So how's your role changed? Obviously, you've got quite a few managers, which everyone knows about, quite a few managers over the last couple of years. Yeah, we
1: have. Um, It's been an interesting transition because, like, when I first came in, we had Steve Bruce, who arguably one of the most successful managers in the club's history, like getting promoted twice, getting to FA Cup final, first Europa League kind of venture for the club, and it was like. And again, before I came in, you obviously you hear about how managers are with sports science, and you do your due diligence to find out whether they are pro sports science or whether you are have those internal battles and politics to deal with and i was fortunate really because i was coming in with a blank canvas and i spent a lot of time with the then with the then fitness coach will royal who would worked with steve a lot of times and it's okay doing a needs analysis of the project i know this is a big thing with like the basis accreditation for example but looking at your environment saying right what is needed long-term goals what are you trying to achieve And then short-term goals what we're trying to do so ultimately like the first month or two was actually just speaking to the coaching staff the managers because we had a change in coaching coaching staff so within one week we went from a different assistant manager and the assistant manager was um the one that really ran ran training alongside the manager and the other coaching staff so it was then getting to learn about how they worked. It was a change within the programme to the players as well. So it's trying to communicate what is the best way. How do you want to win a football match? What's your technical, tactical goals? And ultimately, like, how do you communicate information to the players? So say, for example, we're playing a high pressing game and press right. We want you to get there. Come on make sure you're working at high intensity okay they use high intensity a lot how can we incorporate that to make sure that they understand the certain protocols so for example within some of our reports the accelerations and decelerations and high speed running efforts are grouped into a category called high intensity actions so within the system that we've got the variables are valid and reliable but we're putting it into a language that the coach understands and we know that the variable in the background what it means that is valid, reliable. What's the kind of error within those measurements as well, in order to really give that correct and accurate information to the coaching staff so that one, we can trust what we're prescribing to them and also how we're communicating with them. So I'm trying to say, right, well, tomorrow can you do smaller pitches days where there's going to be a lot of high intensity actions, but we won't have that much big open spaces, which in my sport science terms means. Right, I want a lot of accelerations, decelerations, getting getting place to work in that like heart rate red sermon, so whether that be at, but time above uh your second ventilatory second ventilatory threshold, so it's easy for me to say. Or your eighty five percent like red so minutes but again, individualized, because uh, again, i had a good supervisor throughout my um academic career in Rick Lavelle, who's a lot of his work was on individualization now i'm sure we all reflect back and go actually can you do it better way and that's what practice is you reflect on what you do and how you do it so i probably made a few mistakes with the managers when i was at scunny i probably made a few with steve and McPhelan who was the assistant manager at the time who we went on to be head coach and you keep developing your own program and reflecting so you run really need to analysis you've set out what you've gone to achieve Reflect on it and then go, what can I do to improve it? So on, and that's it's been a good thing and a bad thing with the amount of change your own managers because one that also means change over in players, which then means you're learning new players. So I think currently at the minute we've got three players within our squad that have been here for four like all the time I've been here,
0: right? Which is four years, yeah. yeah.
1: So which means that I'm really confident in their loadings, how they respond to different exercise protocols, because ultimately the more data we get, the smarter we can be with each individual player. Um, but as so uh, happens in football clubs, you get that and it happens a lot in academies as well, like you're working with an under-23s or under-18s group, you could be with players for two years, you yeah. get, you just get to know them and then they're out the system. Oh, yeah. So It's something that we have to deal with in our discipline and I think that's where actually communicating with other teams being well. also when we have loan players in that some of the loan clubs sports scientists and practitioners have been really good with communication and actually helping us support their players because ultimately like as a discipline within our field whether that not just being football and rugby we should be supporting each other if our player goes away to an international team I open everything up to our national team and go right what information do you want on this player? What's going to help you look after him so that so he comes back to us in the best state possible? And it's that kind of link and communication, like the guys at the FA have been really good with that recently. So with one of the players we've got in our squad, it's like, right, great communication backwards and forwards. We know what the guy's doing in the gym there. We know what he's doing on the field. And Likewise, they know what he's doing in the gym and on the field there. And also we communicate to improve the player as well to get the best result for us.
0: That seems an obvious thing, so why wouldn't that
1: obviously not to stitch
0: anyone up that we maybe know that or you maybe know that isn't doing that, but why wouldn't you do that if it's the best thing for the player and the country and the yeah. club?
1: <laughs> it's, it's difficult really. There's a communication barrier. Like I think I think we're very fortunate with like the, the home governing bodies here and like the Irish guys do a good job as well. But when you start to look further afield in that, like there's still international teams that there that might not have like, one, they might not be able to speak English. Secondly, they might not have the experiences like to, to actually communicate with you on a sports science level. It might be a, an old school fitness coach. It might be, they might not have sports science support in general, it might be a physio and they might not have technology like like men's device or heart rate belts to really give you the information that you need. And it's ultimately like do they even collect rpe for example and i think they're the they're the kind of issues that we face really and when when clubs are now looking at like recruitment departments and trying to get the best bargain deals so ultimately which might be from countries abroad and stuff like that that's for a club like ours whereby we might not have the best communication view so we've got a uh, t- Player liaison officer now that speaks like three or four languages, which is a real positive for us now. And we've got a fitness coach that's Spanish. So that's opened up our communication avenues to some of the other international teams but yeah, it's just difficult. Ultimately, like I always try and it's part of my philosophy is if you've got a player from a different culture, you have to learn about that culture in order to help them integrate within to your programme and try and educate you as well. Ultimately you you give them a tablet Uh, with differential RP on like we do here and they go just look at you blankly right what does this mean and you have to talk through it and I get the mickey taken out of me by the um, by some of the staff here because of the way I communicate with them like it's it's the old typical English way of speaking slowly, speaking loud and (laughs) make it clear but I do a lot of actions and also like we've had a so we've got a Brazilian player who's really trying to learn the language so Even things like I said in the gym yesterday, like, let's crack on, lads. He comes up to me and says, Steve, what does crack on mean? (laughs) How do you use crack on? I'm like, like, "Um, that's a really good question. (laughs) Uh, So it's things like that that just have to appreciate a bit more working with different cultures. Like when we were in the Premier League, I think there was one point where we had 14 different nationalities within the dressing room and like half of them spoke really good english half like the rest of them like some were broken english some just couldn't speak english so ultimately like you had to and some didn't want to speak english as well i might add but you have to be able to get your message across and that's where like the good even looking on like google translation making sure that you're very like with a coaching element working with kids actually really helped me to To work with the foreign players because you have to be so descriptive of what you're doing like right okay go back to the article right you talk them through it you demonstrate it and then you action it kind of thing and that's worked really well for me Mm -hmm. so ultimately they all know what the processes are and it works well Mm -hmm. but i have made mistakes in the past and that's why i always look to improve and better myself moving forward
0: so how's your role changed obviously managers have changed How's your influence and expectation from them changed? Obviously, you've had English managers, you've had foreign managers, you've back to an English manager. What's that what's that transition been like between them guys and what's expected of you? Yeah.
1: And so it's going back so with some of the managers, you've got to ease yourself in and ease ease them in kind of thing. So if you chuck the kit chuck the kitchen sink at them straight away, the Spanish guys wouldn't know yeah <laughs> exactly there you go <laughs> that's another phrase why are you why are you chucking the kitchen sink at us? No. if you provide them with too much information i think that's a bit clear yeah so um you provide them with inf- too much information it just becomes information overload so like the first couple of days of a new manager and coaching staff coming in so probably the the best example transition of that i can think about is um we, we had the portuguese manager and portuguese coaching staff and a couple of the portuguese staff struggled to speak english at first so you're like right well if i give them this, this report with high intensity actions on repeated high intensity efforts on they probably don't understand it so it's like right sitting down with them what do you want from us how do you want to play it and it might be right I've got a report, if you want it, I'm happy to show you it, and happy to talk through it, but ultimately what do you want as a coach and stuff? And if at first they say I'm not not interested in that, I'm just I just want you to help me get them out on the pitch, make sure they're fit and ready to go. You talk about, because the transition between different managers is an interesting one there's a lot of studies being mentioned, I know the um, UF group with Jan Ekstrand and that have mentioned about a in manager can increase the number of injuries and We can probably vouch for that as well, um, because it's a transition phase. Unless you manage that properly now, you get some managers that appreciate that and go, you know what? Yeah, we understand that there's going to be a transition phase, so like we'll ease you in. So like with the current manager that we've got, he was actually really good, and we've probably got one of our best availability rates at the minute because we were able to, and they helped us adapt their training methods and philosophy into progressive stints so now we're getting to a point where they're happy with what they're delivering every day whereas at the start it was progressively to help integrate players whereas with with other managers it's just been no we're doing it our way straight away Okay, these are the risks that you face we'll help you manage it along the way but ultimately what's going to help you get free points on the weekend as soon as possible And we've had casualties in the first point and you look at all the risk factors like a change in training loads, players who were over the age of 30, previous injury risk, and they all hit those but ultimately we were getting better performances on the pitch, which a changing manager tends to bring. So, like I said at the start of this conversation, our our job as a department is to help the team get three points on a weekend. Ideally, you've got all your players available but to not doing what the coach or the manager wants them to, that's the kind of balancing act that we have to deliver as a performance and medical department. Ultimately let's get the best um, balance right for that. Mm-hmm. So
0: so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Steve. So in part two, we discuss some of the collaborations that Steve has got going on with various uh, various clubs and institutions all over the world um, and how he uses that to and, and other people's work to influence his own practice. But just before we do get into part two with Steve, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you don't know who Fatigue Science are, I'd encourage you to check out uh, an episode I did a couple of episodes ago with Ian Dunican who talked about the biomathematical modelling which is in the back end of the Fatigue Science Ready Band. So Fatigue Science are most well known for, for the Ready Band in terms of um, sleep tracking basically but lots more additions available within within Fatigue Science including that biomathematical modelling. So the, um, the example that Ian used was mine because I was actually traveling to Australia a couple of days after I spoke to Ian. So he pumped into the model, my travel times, the time zones that I was going through when I needed to be kind of at my most alert, which was a couple of days after I landed. And that that programming that in allowed him to build a model of when I should be awake and when I should be asleep during my travels. So it was a really interesting insight into what fatigue signs can do. Um, especially with people like athletes who are uh, traveling regularly across multiple time zones and have a defined time when they need to be at their most alert, whether that be training or a game. So that's a a little very simple insight into what fatigue science can do, but I would uh, encourage you to check out that uh, that episode with Ian Doonican. They can also be found on Twitter at Fatigue Science and online at FatigueScience.com. So over to the part two with Steve. Hope you enjoy. So you've been, or come to know as Mr. Playload, Dr. Playload. Well, where's the, where was the interest? Where interest come from? Obviously, that's what the PhD was, yeah. based around. Where did that interest come from from you, and why, why down that route, and how's that? Obviously, big bulk of work over five, six years now influencing what you do day to day here.
1: Yeah. So, so start off oh, uh, for fortunate that while i was doing the work at scumfort whole university were actually one of the first adopters of like men's technology within the country and so i remember sitting back in a room with uh myself rick lavell chris barnes and jamie harley up at middlesbrough football club's training ground when they worked there with uh, now the owner ceo's of the company um sean and Igor van de great and we sat there they were like right how can we make this software better how can we improve it and really they didn't it was because it was a technology developed within the ais and they were like right we've done but we've not really done football how can we help develop it and it came from there really because you use the technology and you've like we actually challenged the validity and reliability so there was a couple of papers was like right well is it useful for this is it useful for that and playload was one of them where there was not a lot of research and they were like, Oh, playload's been found really useful within like rugby, within that. Okay, how does it transfer across to football? And we had one particular player at Scunthorpe, so he was man of the match most games. Um but he didn't run anywhere. So like he was for a centre midfielder as well, he had the lowest distance covered, like lowest high speed running, lowest sprint, so the the manager was constantly like Berate him saying you're not fit enough, you don't work hard enough, even though, like, behind closed doors, he said, Yeah, he's man of the match, he was brilliant, like, he did this and he did that. And I was like, Well, if he's man of the match, then why does the time motion analysis there kind of affect him? That's where you start researching. But his playload score was through the roof. I was like, Right, well, how does that kind of explain what's going on when you watch the footage change of directions? He was. Change direction a lot more, planting heavier, tackling, heading, and also because it's triaxial accelerometer data that playloads derived from, we're actually seeing a, a more rounded monitoring variable than what we've seen with time motion analysis data. And the interesting thing with that particular player was that his loads progressively increased throughout the season. He was like, Right, something's going on here. And you speak like speaks to the physio, like I'm seeing, seeing this, this is what we think it means like when we've done like our, our little internal work, like, has he reported anything to you? Yeah, he's not feeling great, like he's started to, he's got this problem, this problem, this problem, and you go, okay, maybe that might explain it, and you keep going, it's like, well, I'm a com, I can't, we can't say to pull him out, and that he's coming to the end of his apprenticeship at the time, like he's pushing for a contract, you pull him out of match play, like, just going to struggle so like right well we need to keep playing and ultimately at the end of the season two or three games ago he broke down and again has talked about making mistakes before and you go could we have protected him a little bit more probably but did we know enough about it at the time this is going back to 2008 when the first like play load research paper on validity reliability by luke boy and his group came out in 2011 so you're like um okay that's that's what we could have done. And then that really sparked my interest in it. And from that, took that into the Masters, where the Masters, we actually monitored all the, the youth team games to create a, a youth soccer-specific simulation. And the interesting result about that, so we were like, right, well, we'll do it based upon the time motion analysis data. So they should get the same payload data, surely. Because there's a correlation of one-to-one that everyone keeps saying about. And the more you run, the more load you get and what what we found out so again did the average did this soccer simulation it was like wow there's so much individual variation within the loading even under doing the same thing like what explains it i know with the information we know now like this seems like a bit of a, a dumb explanation of it but we were like so players all move run differently different heights different weights all move differently doing the same activity and they have such varied load. I think there was a, when we actually ran it, I think there was the variability was something death like 35, 36%. And I, again, I might be incorrect with that statement because it's incorrect. that long ago now, but we go, right. Well, okay, it's that variable, which if, is it acceptable? And it's like, well, actually when we did the reliability study on the same socket within the individual it was really reliable so like that was what my phd was showing is that actually there's great variability within this playload kind of data but which again triaxle accelerometer this so or whatever system you're using again it's always good to do your own checks with it as well i might stress that while we're going on mm. about this i'm just conscious of going too much into yeah. play because it's accelerometry data in general is that ultimately you can you can get a bit more information about the individual like and part of the phd journey i did was actually doing historical checks on the accelerometers like we used it in elite sport and like i i said earlier the fashion fashion part of us within our discipline is like jumping on the next bandwagon kind of thing right these members device which we use for distance covered, high speed oh they've got player load they've got um dynamic stress load they've got all these accelerometer variables but we might not exactly know what it tells us straight away so we need to do that due diligence and knowledge to really help our coaches and players get the most from this to help us within our our practical element to really prescribe and monitor players so and you do historical checks on like the exam, it was used in gait analysis with biomechanics they use it within ph- physical activity a lot to check energy expenditure and the more information you start looking up on it you go actually there's great potential within it and this is probably why I got called like King Playload by someone like James because I'm, oh, ge- <laughs> I'm, <that,
0: laughs>
1: I'm that geeky guy. that I just go on and expand like, I feel sorry for work colleagues because this is what they have to deal with on a daily basis um, but and then you go well actually so it's used as gate analysis it's used for energy expenditure and I know guys at Chester Union have been doing some stuff on that And you go, right, well, okay, why have we not investigated that within football so far? So like, we've got this technology that can potentially do this, this, and this. So stuff like the, um, I know there's a lot of interest in the asymmetry and the movement analysis, which we've been doing a lot of like research on it. Ourselves and my first PhD, study was looking at, um, running on treadmill, using the accelerometer, just checking the validity and reliability. And again, being open and honest, like the PhD journey set off to look at energy expenditure. Right. So because it was more of a physiology-based uh, PhD to start off with, and we we're looking at the gas analysis did. And when you go back to gas analysis research, and like this is one thing the PhD journey has really taught me, is that you need to go back and read research papers that have referenced certain re- research papers, and then read those papers that were referencing that. You go back to some of the VO2 max studies, and like the first VO2 max study was done using like six people. And yet now we go, oh, you've not got 10 or 20 people, then it's not a really good study and stuff like that. Yeah, like the original research papers, we used that, the technology wasn't as good, so should we be replicating some of those studies now and checking actually with more people better technology so should we be checking that and sorry to digress a little bit um but now we go back so when we looked at the energy expenditure stuff and i always say we because no matter even if it's my own work there's always people that help you and guide you through it and so like i mentioned rick and rick Lavelle already but like adrian midgley uh, who's a professor at Edge Hill university was my other supervisor who's very good with statistics, but also VO2 max testing as well. Um, They helped me really appreciate that you need to look at what your current practices are and do those historical checks really to see where you can actually go with it. And a lot of the innovation that's getting done nowadays is through that kind of, okay, what have we done previously? How can we learn from that? How can we better it? So from that, treadmill study actually we looked at and gone at there's the gait analysis actually telling us a lot more because again if you cut it at 16 kilometers per hour everyone's got different loading variables it's reliable from a within athlete person but between athletes it was like greater so and again then you question the statistical approaches that you use when you you're monitoring and how how you're actually comparing players and ultimately like something like player load, should we be comparing players or should we be comparing within player as well and that challenged me as well and again the next few studies of a phd I started to look at so we looked at the soccer simulation validity reliability but also at the fatiguing element and actually as you got more tired your loading stat increased throughout a game when the time motion analysis was controlled for okay so and when we speak about it, in general, it's like, well, as you get more tired, like you start to become less efficient with your movement. You start to... So if you're running, potentially heel straight more because you can't control your muscles more. There's less... I think, without going into too much biomechanics, because there's a lot more experience and better experts in that field than me, ultimately we're starting to see players fatigue and we've got a number that can help us identify that as well. However, when we go into actual match play... And there's a lot of work by, like, I think the Warren Gregson paper in 2010, the match variability within the pros and data really sums it up, is that there's match play is just that variable that's hard to really account for, like, when you pro pros. So something that's that variable, for us, like, the game, so a lot of research papers say football matches are 25% of your weekly training load. However, some weeks it might be 10 like for certain variables, some weeks it might be 50 60% of your weekly training, especially within the championship at the minute. Um, going two games a week, so we've had blocks of like 12 games within like five weeks at some points this season, and it's just been chaotic really. Like you just play, recover, play, recover, bit of match prep, recover, play, so on. And so it's managing that, and we've We've been able to wear the members devices within games for the second half of the season, which has really helped us be more specific and in, individual to that player and their needs. So for example, like, as a rule, rule of thumb. If a player plays over 60 minute, minutes here, or what's previously done when I first came in, that player wouldn't have to be on recovery the next few days. And anyone that plays under like, 45 minutes, to like they would be able to train the next day. And we've been a little bit smarter with that now because, like, can kind of the information we, we come across because it's like, right, this is what they've actually done in the game. They rated it this, so using the external load, such as playload, such as your time motion analysis data, look at the internal responses. So, from a subjective point of view, the differential RP, and then going, right, they didn't actually find that hard. The time motion analysis data is not a lot. The game was a bit of a dead game. They can still train the next day because some of our players like to to keep going so to speak and that's where I talk about individual approach and the PhD really taught taught me that is that we need to get away from this kind of group group analysis and be really individual specific in order to help the team better than monitor it as a group like I speak with our nutritionist and he he sometimes tells me like what the group average is and I just turn around and say to him like I'll be honest with you I don't care what the group (laughs) average is because it's about the individual as well and what that's doing so I think any any intern that comes through here and with the intern program that we've got we try and really stress that is that ultimately how do you we want you to start off a bit further ahead of where we had to start off so that like you're a better place for a job in the future and we sound like broken records sometimes back in my day and stuff like that, but I think we're yeah, while people starting now it, this is a really really good time to be coming into it because the technology is there you you're blessed. so like the software now is a lot better than when i first started so i had to go through each individual player reports took about four four hours to do because like you're having to download each individual one create your own macros to generate these long individual reports whereas now we've got configurable flat table team reports, which makes it a lot better, for, not just from one software, but every bit of kit that you get so that you can put it into one big database. And and the visualization tools have become a lot better now as well. So actually painting the the messages to the coaching staff, the managers and the players, it makes it a lot easier to really deliver those messages that you're trying to give as well. So you've
0: developed, you've developed a relationship with the guys at Microsoft? Yeah. Just to talk a little bit about Power BI and maybe other things that are out there, but how you use that on a daily basis and the kind of um, collaboration you've had with them guys over the last couple of years.
1: Yeah. So it's um, it's got gone a little bit quiet, quiet now, but it's still it's still work in progress with some of the guys I met through that program actually to develop apps and everything else. Um, Power BI has been a great visualization tool. Like I'm like it's made my job a lot easier to present data and spend less time actually having to create graphs and tables and stuff like that. Whereas now like for one example I can use, so even though I've still got reservations about it and it's been quite well <laughs> broadcast over social media and so on at the minute, it's the whole acute chronic ratio. I think we've still got due diligence as um, practitioners. Like there's something researched out there that's proven to work in a way. Even though you might not necessarily agree, it still should have it in the background to use and investigate. Because one individual might be really useful for. Um, but the Power BI allows integration with R scripts. So actually, integrating some of the statistical um, models that would take take a while to do um, so for example one of the most recent ones is running uh, linear mix model and plotting like spline explain, explain that uh, so linear, linear mix modeling I knew you put spot there and stuff Stitched. like <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> linear mix modeling is kind of where it allows you to run multiple nerves and mm-hmm. also look at the variability at the same time so actually what's the, what's the difference within certain time points but also then in you know, order to explain the variability, so for example, within the final study, my PhD, um, we looked at the time differences within match play over 15-minute time slots. But then we also wanted the model to account for the variability. So, for example, was it the whether it was home or away? Did that explain the model? Was it the individual player that explained the model the most? So, for example, the thing that explained playload them the most within soccer match play was the individual which counted for 64 percent of the variability within the model which is massive so we kind of use that in order to to look at what explains um certain processes within our our training programs and also the match play as well so integrating the like some of the data in there running that and behind the scenes which hopefully next season we can start to progress on a little bit more with um but the acute chronic ratio um we actually fits like spline models to look at play players over time so for so for example the model, model we've got we look at six variables at the minute so things like you repeat high intensity efforts uh high intensity actions sprint distance playload, differential rpe and total distance rightly or wrongly there's other variables that you can look at but they kind of give us a global overview and we do Im- investigate individual variable specific individuals as well that just allows us to see right well actually some players have uh the whole um inverted inverted u some players have the u shape where they have that sweet spot where they can excise and the risk of injury is really low however some players have an m shape some players have a Z shape some players have an s shape in the model and for certain variables, and you just go right. Well, this player, for example, if he sprints, he gets injured. So while we've got this whole whole we should be opening players up to achieve. If you want them to get above seven meters per second, as an absolute, or 25 kilometers per hour, per hour, however you want to say it, that player tends to get injured whenever he goes over that. And then, now, even if you expose him to that and train him. He might have low collagen count. He might have X, Y, and Z mechanical issues that cause him to, and it's not the same injury site all the time. So actually, from that basis, we monitor him relatively and also looking at it. So if he's got a top speed that's around the 8.2, for example, I can say we don't have a player with a top speed of 8.2, <laughs> I might add, but if that's his top speed, looking at it relative will actually help us inform that actually his sprint in comparison to some of our sprints so we have marathon runners and sprinters which again i've nicked from paul balsam who used it the most whereby your sprinters like your wide players you forward to the they're rapid they're quick but they also need a lot of rest before they go again and then your marathon runners who just constantly run around and sometimes those marathon runners like actually put themselves a greater risk if they're going at intensity because they're not used to it and it goes back to the theory behind the acute chronic from Tim Gabbett and I spent a lot of time with Tim back in my old job and it was great sharing the information because ultimately it's like what's the player used to and how does it change as well and I'm actually teetotal and don't drink but the analogy that gets used all the time is drinking beer and if you have one pint like and drink gradually or ten pints and so on if I had two pints I'd probably pass out <laughs> So that's kind of the theory behind it, is that if you don't help your players adapt to change then and progressively help them change, then that influences your program and potentially puts them at greater injury risk, which is basically what we use Power BI for in order to visualize that to the coaching staff and to the players. So if we ever have individual problems, and like, oh, like, I've got this, I've got this, why are we doing this? Well, this is the reason why you're doing it. This is the reason why we're pushing you this bit harder this is why we're coming off you this week and so on because we've got to be able uh, whatever we do we should be able to explain but we've got visual learners we've got audio learners we've got all the different types of learners which looking at the psychology of things like do we appreciate that as much when we're presenting reports like i'm sure everyone has reports that have a graph on or a table on like probably with conditional formatting as well which i I do as well, like, I'll hold my hands up to that. But is that the best way for each individual athlete to learn? If we just put a sheet of paper up with the scores and stuff like that, like, we tend, our approach is that we'd rather talk to the athlete and show them, so this is where Power BI has really come into it and with the R scripts in the background from the Power BI, because I don't write R scripts and stuff like that, I'm not that advanced, I'm not a data scientist, I'm a sports scientist that likes data, and ultimately like using their community that write these R scripts that makes these visualisations so much quicker than what we can can really ever do. So it takes me probably a year to learn how to write R scripts to then deliver it, to then visualize it. This is done in like two, three minutes. So that's where these kind of softwares are really coming to run and we use them to educate players, coaching staff and many stroke physios as well. Mm-hmm because um, ultimately like we want the interpretation of players to be as as specific to our philosophy as possible whereas like you can put a sheet of paper up like right this is the training report from today and um, the only time the, the athletes see their data is on the real time as they're coming in and there's minimal variables actually on the real the real time not necessarily because of the software but because that's our choice so mm-hmm. we only allow so because again if we're having a big pitch day what are the targets for those big pitch days let the players see those big pitch days when they come out to really, oh you've only done x amount of distance. yeah but he's done he's done like the most sprint output which is what our aim was for today so don't worry about that variable you're a, you're a winger you shouldn't be looking just at that variable that's the more important variable to you and also the software is used to help educate players with that and really educate and also monitor and prescribe mm-hmm. So one thing I want to get in before
0: I um before I let you go is the collaboration that you've got going on. Obviously, you've you still got the you've got the PhDs, the research head on as well as we sat yeah. here at the club. So we're you know in the applied yeah, in the no. applied world. But oh. what else is going on in terms of you guys collaborating with the people with what you've got going on, what they've got going on, producing research? You know what's what's that look like?
1: Yeah, so there's a, there's a few things going on because I think one of the big things like we chatted about outside of the podcast is actually collaborating with other people so for example last season we we got a group of people together tried to discuss like research projects what we're doing within different clubs because I know a lot of the researchers out there and academics are wanting this kind of multi-center approach in order to really be smarter with research protocols like I was I was chatting to one of uh, our collaborators the other day so I'll list through it and then i'll come back to this point actually um so some of the collaborations working with the some of the guys that used to work at microsoft within the partnership model that we did to develop an app um which you look at training load monitoring and also be a bit of an athlete monitoring solution but from an academic point of view i think it's important that you you challenge yourself outside of what you used to now while and you you said that I'm known as like Mr. Playload kind of thing. Like, uh, that's, that's Dr. Malone that's referenced (laughs) that. So, uh, yeah, he'll he'll love getting referenced so much in this as well. Like a fellow ginger, just like yourself. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, um, but again, someone like him collaborated, we're trying to bring together like communication pieces about GPS and the use of it within different environments. Um, but going into other sports as well so like um for example use looking at submax testing so guys called tannis scott and um, down at the brisbane broncos i've been collaborating with him and sean mclaren on some submaximal more research projects within rugby league so different sports so you're learning about different athletes at the same time but bringing your own expertise to the forefront as well and a lot of the differential rpe stuff like we're in a collaboration with Teesside University, in order one to help us improve our practice and get the best monitoring solutions for our players, which again, differential IP is that the be on end It's been a really useful tool for us, but I'm sure there'll be something that comes along in 10, 15 years' time that improves it again, just like every other bit of research. So Matt Weston and Sean McLaren at Teesside University have been great with that. And like even working on within football with other clubs as well so my PhD for example was able to work with the guys at Leicester, Blackburn and Reading in order to bring together data in order to get a greater overview of really what's going on overall in in our sport really and at the minute like I'm doing a collaborative project with Joe Club over at the Buffalo Bills from when she was working in football as well so there's a lot of Good research people out there that are driven to kind of improve and one thing after the phd i didn't really want to stand still because ultimately like you get to your phd and if you're in the applied world it's like what do i do now like i've been so my education background i was i didn't really have a rest of, excuse me sorry i was going for 10 years working working and doing academic background and i didn't i always want to keep Challenging myself and progressing and I think that's hopefully what I try and do within the working environment as well And we have our internal approach to working with like Matt Busby, the SNC coach on some of the Real specific um, Gym monitoring solutions he's got which are quite exciting to Working with our in- intern Ben Eakins to try and bring about a PhD uh, program for him for future looking into different ways of monitoring athletes from a fatiguing point of view as well, and neuromuscular fatigue. Um, so again, there's a few exciting projects going on. And then there's also, also work. So we've got a substitute um, program at the minute. Again, it's something new, whether or not it's it changes the world of football, it may or may not do, but ultimately it's something that we don't know. And we want to improve our knowledge to improve the provision to the players. So that's with Mark Russell and Sam Hills at Leeds Trinity as well, and then last but not least, and I can see why my wife gets annoyed with me now because of all these <laughs> lots of voice
0: notes. lots, yeah, of, lots notes. of voice
1: notes. Lots, some of the voice notes I get from uh, Tan at the Brisbane Broncos is a uh, very. I can't, I can't repeat that. I'm sure you've had them a lot as well, Absolutely. mate. So, uh, yeah. so shout out to Tan for uh, some of his voice notes. Um, but also working on some mental fatigue projects as well. Um, a guy called Chris Thompson and Aaron Coutts. Um, So there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on at the minute. And while, while when I even say that, I'm thinking to myself, am I spreading myself a bit too thin at the minute? Ultimately, like, as long as you get the, the balance right, that you can really bring something and also learn something at the same time, then collaborations are some of the best ways to learn, really, because Communicate with people even speaking to yourself listening to your podcasts have been really good to develop and create new ideas like we were having a chat before the podcast about some of the business entities out there in the world and you got the best ideas come from just slightly tweaking and changing previous ideas as well so ultimately we're building upon the foundations that have been set out in sports science and the monitoring world and we're trying to change them and improve them and I think that's something that we need to keep doing as a profession as well. Nice.
0: Well, anyone that is interested in collaboration, finding out more about what you guys are doing academically or or here at the club, where what's best place for them to get in touch with you?
1: Um just a few places. So email email is one. Uh, so sbsportscience at me dot com is my personal email. Um social media again is another one, so Steve Barrett Five on Twitter. It's another one. I think that came when I used to play play football a bit and just chose the number Big five. Half. Big centre <laughs> half. Yeah, that's the one. Um so there's those two avenues. LinkedIn as well is a great avenue to touch base with me on. Um but again, even speaking to to people like Rob, getting in touch through that way, um, even giving me a call, I'm happy to take calls as well. some numbers over oh seven seven oh two oh four one oh one nine. Um yeah, getting in touch anyway, like I'm always open to discuss ideas, new ventures and everything else as well. So it's a really, like, from a research point of view, it's an exciting time, really. There's a lot of stuff going on, which hopefully will start to see small changes to how we we as practitioners do things as well. And there's a lot of good stuff going on out there mm-hmm.
0: as well. Cool. Well, it's a sunny day, so, and you've got a day off, so I
1: appreciate you coming into work to, <laughs> no, no problem at all it's, it's it's enjoyable and it's nice to be part of history doing oh, the, the, the first <laughs> first live podcast as well yeah. I mean i have to get you uh, topped up on protein bars Absolutely. and everything else now it's as not, well yeah. but so, yeah no I
0: appreciate it maybe flapjack bit of I flapjack maybe flapjack in. let's go have a look and see yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right thanks a lot mate and I'll, uh, I'll speak to you soon no it's
1: cheers thanks, Rob thanks again cheers mate
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Steve for welcoming welcoming me into the uh, training ground at Hull City uh, and giving up his day well part of his day off to uh, to come and do a live episode. So really appreciate that from uh, from Steve. Also big thanks to Val Performance, Forstex and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. Got a another football uh, episode next week. Um, with a dual episode with two, two guests um, from a Premier League football club. That's to be very exciting. So don't forget to, uh, to press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and that will automatically uh, be on your phone on Thursday when it goes live. So thanks again for your support. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and I will chat next week.